Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. So, uh, some things about me. I'm a high school teacher. I teach at Cole Valley. I teach Bible and history classes for high school students. Um, I am blessed to be married to my, my best friend, Heather, who's sneaking past the camera right there. She is the brains of our operation. Um, and then, hopefully, maybe you've had a chance to see my daughters that run around here, Lila, who's nine, and Hannah, who's seven. Um, so that's a little bit about us. I'm excited to speak today, but uh, I think, as, as you will see, it's going to be a really interesting section of Ephesians. Uh, we're in Ephesians 5. Um, before we get started, this is a text that carries a lot of weight for a lot of people. Um, if I could have the first slide. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's the, when you see that, it carries a lot of weight, right? I bet there was feelings that popped up for you right away as soon as you saw that. Um, and I'll be honest, for me, there, there's, there's feelings too. Um, makes me even a little nervous to wrestle with this text. Um, but the thing is, what we're looking at is scripture, so even when there's parts of it that give us a little bit of discomfort or challenge, we don't have the right to skip past it. We instead need to dive in instead and explore what's there and figure out what God's got to say there. We know that this is something that many people in the church have used really to cause pain and hurt. Um, I was just reading a, a story recently about a really famous pastor. Um, if I said his name, you guys would all know him. I'm not going to get into that, but the point is, I just saw something where there was a woman who had uh, reported that her husband was, was abusing her to the church. She went to the church for help, and because she wouldn't just immediately take her husband back because she still feared him, they shunned her in the church and pushed her out and instead what we saw was not too long later he was in prison for his actions but nobody reconciled with the wife because she wasn't willing to submit to her husband and take him back um, I would propose that I don't think that's what the text is telling us but it's not about what I have to say let's dive in and see what the text has to say okay so whatever feelings you have about that phrase right now let's uh, both you and I Let's push delete, push reset, and start fresh and hear the beauty of the word. Let the spirit flow through the scriptures. Um, if you could join me in prayer for a second. Lord, this is a complicated text, but we know it's your word. We know it's truth. So please uh, help us to hear the truth that you would present to us through this text. Um, if this is not about me, this is not about our, our 2022 Idaho perspectives of what this should look like. This is about your universal, eternal truth. 
Uh, please open our hearts and our minds in submission to you. We love you, Lord. Amen. I'll give you one more caveat. I've wrestled with this text, and I have two things to say. One, I feel like the time does not give me enough time to fully cover it, and so I'm very humbled by that and happy to talk to you further should you have further questions afterwards. Second, I think there's pieces of it that I'm still wrestling with. So as community, I'm submitted to you. And if afterwards you have things that you want to point out to me, please do, because I want to continue to grow in the text as well. So we'll wrestle with it together as community, which I think is actually the spirit of this text. Okay, so... I told you I teach uh, biblical interpretation. Or I told you I teach Bible. Biblical interpretation is one of the classes I teach. And when you're looking at biblical interpretation, it's really easy to take a text and just take it out and say, this is it. This is what I'm making my theology from. But when you look at biblical interpretation, the proper way to do it is to consider that, first of all, this text is a piece of one entire story. And just like you can't take Frodo's lines out of a Lord of the Rings movie and take it and use it however you want, the same is true with any text of Scripture. You have to see where it fits into the entirety of the story of Scripture. Otherwise, you've missed its point, right? Maybe in elementary school you had an assignment where you had multiple different sentences and you figured, had need to figure out where it fits in the paragraph. Same thing with this. Number two, you have to consider your location. And so we can bring our questions to the text, but we may not find out what the text is saying that way. Instead, what we need to do is try to determine what are the questions the people of Ephesus were asking that Paul is addressing. Once we figure that out, then we can figure out how that moves to our context. Does that make sense? So this is, um, have you ever sent an email to somebody with multiple questions and then they reply back only answering one? Um, it's like, well, did you read the whole email? Um, the letter of Ephesus, you could see it as a piece in an email chain. You can see it as the people of Ephesus wrote Paul an email, he responded back, and then they respond back to him, but we're only seeing Paul's piece in the email. So we have to wrestle with it in humility to understand, like, to, to, what were the questions? What's going on here, okay? So one piece in that is, when you're reading an email, you can't start in the middle of it. Back a little bit and skim a couple pieces from four and into five to build up, okay? So in Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17, Paul says, I tell you this, insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer um, live as the Gentiles do, no longer living as the world does around you in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That should remind us of Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart. And if I keep going down, he tells them to take on this new life that they have in Christ. They're a new uh, life in Christ, and to take that on, I'm going to drop down to verse 32. He says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You are a light in the Lord live as children of the light. So taking some of those concepts and moving forward, we're going to pick up for what we're going to talk about today in verse 15 of chapter 5. He says, be very careful then how you live. As a result of the things that he just had talked about, 
Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. What's interesting where it says making the most of every opportunity, the Greek there is actually saying to redeem the time because the days are evil. So we need to start thinking about how can we redeem our time? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. It's not meaning what is, like, God, what is your will for my life? But it's understanding God's overall story. What is his plan? What, where does this fit in creation and redemption? What is God doing? Do not get drunk on wine that leads to debauchery. Don't be caught up in the ways of the world. Instead, be filled. That be filled is a present and ongoing tense. Be filled with the Spirit. The word Spirit is interesting. Um, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, it can mean um, breath, wind, or Holy Spirit, all three. And so he kind of does a wordplay here where he says, uh, be filled with the Spirit, be filled with God's breath, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make joyful music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Those are all the different ways that we are supposed to reflect that we are filled with that were inserted later. Um, verse 21 is connected in the Greek to the, the previous text. And what it tells us is if we're filled with the Spirit, it should be seen in the way that we speak, in the way that we worship, in our lives of thanksgiving, and in the way that we submit to one another. And note that verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, and this submitting to one another is not new to this text. Um, if you could throw up the Galatians verse for me, please. Um, in uh, Galatians 5, it says, You've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but do not use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That word serve, serve one another in love, in the Greek is actually to be enslaved to one another in love. Note that this was two brothers and sisters. This is an ongoing concept that Paul brings up in other places. Um, so, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Can you give me the slide on that, please? The word submit, uh, it's before that. The, 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 one, the, the word submit, what does that mean? What does it mean to submit? I would propose to you that biblical submission is to voluntarily yield to another in love. Okay? So we are called to voluntarily yield to each other in love. What does that look like in our life, to voluntarily yield to people? Um, I'm not from Idaho, moved here in 2016. Pretend you didn't hear all of that, especially when you find out that I came from California. Um, Something I've learned about Idaho distinctly, as I'm sure you're well aware, different parts of the country have different elements to their culture. Bad, right? But that is a very distinct part of Idaho culture. What's interesting is Paul presents a culture of biblical submission and voluntarily yielding to one another in love. 
how does that sit with us who lives in the context of Idaho? Well, first what Paul's going to do is he's going to take us and talk to us about what life is like in Greco-Roman first century Ephesus. So we have to recognize it was written to them first before it comes to us. So as we wrestle with these verses, we need to realize that. It's looking at first century Greco-Roman culture. What does it look to voluntarily yield to one another in love? Okay, so before we can wrestle with it for ourselves today, we have to wrestle with what does it look like for them. The next section is in that we find that first in Genesis. Okay, so I'm going to skim through some concepts from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning, God's ideal for creation. Um, yeah, that's great. Thank you. What we see is God creates humanity in his image, and we know that God exists as a trinity, right? So we have the one Trinitarian God who's made up of three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? But they come together to make the one Trinitarian God. And in reflection of that trinity, he makes a human in his image. In Hebrew, the human is the Adam. That, mean, that word means human. It doesn't start off as a, a, as a proper name. It means human. We have a human that's created. And what we see as we continue on is that everything about creation is beautiful and good, except that when God looks at that Adam, is he splits this lonely Adam, this lonely human, into two. He takes them, and we have now two sides. We have the male and the female. Although those are distinct, the emphasis in the text is that they're in communion together. There is an obvious distinction. I think we can look around the room and figure out who's a male and who's a female. There's obvious distinctions, but the emphasis in the text is not on the distinction. It's actually on the communion, the unity. And then he continues, and, and we see that when the man sees the woman, he calls her bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Again, a recognition of how similar we are, actually. We are in union together. He doesn't start off by listing off all the differences. He talks about that she's like me. But yet we both uniquely reflect the Trinitarian God as image bearers. In fact, it says it in Genesis 1, 27, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them both in his image. And then in Genesis 2.24, he specifically says, and this is going to be important, it tells us that the man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. I would propose to you that I see nowhere in Genesis 1 and 2 a hierarchy. I see an emphasis on unity together. In fact, even when we get to Genesis 3, when Eve is talking with the serpent, it specifically tells us in verse 6 that Adam is standing right there. They both equally and in union sin. And it's not till after that sin that we see the brokenness of relationships. And then as a result of the brokenness of relationships, by the end of chapter 3, we do start to see a hierarchy formed, not because God says you have to have a hierarchy, but because there's a, he has wives as property as opposed to one flesh. Okay? So what I would propose to you is that in Genesis, the focus is not on differences and it's not on hierarchy. It's on unity. That brokenness 
comes as a result of sin, and that's what the world ends up running with. Okay? That's God's household code. So now let's jump in to the household code that we see in Ephesians. Now, keep in mind, in the Greco-Roman world, household codes were really important. They viewed household codes as a micro-model of what the rest of the world should operate like. Politics, everything should reflect what happens in the house. Um, and so that's really important to them, especially Aristotle teaches that. So it's not surprising that when Paul starts explaining what should life be like in the church, that he starts with saying, look, this is what it can look like in your household, in our culture. Yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. A couple things to note here. First, when we get to the next section that's addressing the men, you'll notice it's about twice as long. A couple reasons. First of all, um, a woman in a Greco-Roman culture, first century, would have looked at this and said, okay, yeah, no, duh, that makes sense. Um, that's pretty obvious. This is what we already talk about in our culture. But, but, but Paul presents it in an interesting way. He's not talking about reflecting culture. He's talking about reflecting Christ in her marriage. Um, and he goes on to say, well, first of all, actually, um, well, we have freedom in Christ, and therefore we don't need to continue living the way that, that everybody else is living. We have our own independence in Christ. You can see that in places like Galatians uh, 3.28 and stuff. Um, and here it seems like Paul is saying, actually, no, don't get so obsessed with your own freedom. Submit your freedom to your husband. And this is why. Verse 23, it says, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. What does that head mean? If I say I'm the head of a department, that means I'm the manager, I'm the boss. Everybody needs to answer to me, right? But here's the interesting piece. No one would deny that Christ is the head. He is the one that's king. But as we go through Ephesians, how is Paul using that term head? That's something I've not heard anybody address before, and I think, feel like we, we need to look at that, since that's the context of the letter. So, can, this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Yes, Christ is in charge. Now, he's far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things. Why? For the benefit of the church. The church is his body. It's made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. He is the head, not for himself. He's in charge of everything so that he can benefit the church. That's what head means in that verse. What does he have that he can use to benefit the church? That's the emphasis of the word head in that verse. Um, can you bring me to uh, Ephesians 4, please? Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. So that's our goal is to grow like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. 
He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. The emphasis here is not on God's authority for himself. The emphasis here is how Christ is there to help the church grow. What can he give to the church? That's the emphasis of the headship here. It's a different thing. The other piece in it is that it's emphasizing that the church and Christ are one. So it's not Christ trying to just help the church. It's Christ building up his own body. They're united. When we think of headship, yes, Christ is king. But the emphasis of the use of the word head in Ephesians is about what Christ is giving of himself for others. What he has, and he's giving it to others sacrificially. That's how it's being used here. So we can erase all of our other thoughts about headship. In this book, Paul is emphasizing how Christ is giving for the church and how Christ is united to the church. That's the emphasis here. Um, a guy named Mark Roberts, a scholar, Mike Roberts, kind of summarizes this section. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you submit to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, head in this reference, and therefore they are unified as one body, just like Christ in the church. When the wife submits to her husband, it's as if she's submitting to herself. Moreover, to give, so the wife should receive all that her husband gives for her, and plus she should seek to serve him as an expression of love. So, what I would emphasize here is that in a Greco-Roman culture, the woman is really limited in what she's able to do by, for herself because of the culture. The husband has certain advantages culturally, and therefore she should serve him and love him in receiving what he is able to give her and build her up. She builds him up, he builds her up. And this is going to come up more clearly in the next section. When we look at the household codes, it's also important to understand that in the Greco-Roman culture, love is not ever mentioned in household codes. It's always about how the man will rule the wife. Um, let's see, Aristotle said it's part of the household science to rule over the wife, and if the woman is in all things inferior to the man, let her accordingly be submissive that she may be directed. Nothing in there about loving your wife, seeing how amazing she is, all of those things. And it's really all about you, as the man, having power and ruling over your wife. So what does Paul say about that? How does Paul dialogue with that? Starting in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives. That word love is not just emotion. It's how you act out in the will of loving your wife. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the part where somebody in a Greco-Roman audience would have actually looked in shock. Um, the first part, yeah, okay, whatever. People are off chatting on the side. When Paul says this, this is the moment when everybody stops talking and looks at him like he's crazy. Holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
Those are all the things Christ has done for the church. So what does it look like when a husband reflects that? In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. This morning I was hungry. I fed myself, right? I ate breakfast. That's how I care for my own body. Husbands are supposed to love their wives as their own bodies, not rule over them, love them as as if they're one. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Any place in Scripture where I ever see that it says that a man has authority over his wife's body. And I found one place. Um, Would you be willing to give me... um, The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. Oh, and wait, look. And the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. That's how it works when we are one flesh. Yes, I do have authority over my wife's body, equally as she has authority over my body. It's mutual. It's not one over the other to rule. And when we share that mutual authority with each other, it's a beautiful thing. There's distinct elements about my wife. We just had an amazing dinner with a great couple the other night, and in that conversation, we were discussing that there's distinct things about my wife, and there's distinct things about me, And we need each other. I can't do it without my wife. And I hope that that she would say she can't do it without me. We cover each other when we fully serve each other. 120% for each other, right? It's not about, wife, go get me a beer. Not like here. But you get the idea. It's, Heather, can I get you something to drink? That is the appropriate response. And what I know is that she does the same for me. And in that relationship, it's a beautiful unity of one flesh, always caring for each other. That's what Paul is proposing here. Then he goes on and he says something that's really confusing in the way he words it. This is a profound mystery. What is the profound mystery he's talking about? His emphasis is on Christ and the church and their unity. He talks about mystery a bit in Ephesians. In chapter 1, he talks about the mystery of being, of the, the, the bringing of unity to all things under heaven and earth in Christ. Chapter 3 talks the mystery of the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Again, two distinct persons coming together in unity as one in the church. And in chapter 5, we talk about the mystery of Christ uniting with the church. And what does that look like as we reflect Christ uniting as one with the church? We see that acted out as the husband and wife are united together as one body. The emphasis of the head and the body is not that the head dominates the body, it's that the two parts need each other in order to flourish, right? Um, This would be really disgusting, so try not to picture it, but if somehow my head got severed right now, next statement. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And we've heard that. Love others, treat others as you want to be treated, right? That's that's it. 
that's there. Um, he must love his wife as he loves himself. And then he says the wife must respect her husband, not fear her husband, not obey her husband, must respect her husband. And what's interesting is for those of us that understand how a paragraph works, you start off the paragraph with an introductory statement, and then you close the paragraph with basically a restatement of the introductory statement. You just slightly reword it, but it means the same thing, right? He started off the paragraph, the, the very beginning of his thought with, wives submit to your husbands, and then he closes it with wives respect your husbands. So somewhere in between, submit and respect must be speaking to each other to help us understand what that word means. Does that make sense? Overall, this is not a marriage manual. This section is, foc is, is, is focused not just on the distinct roles of a husband and wife, but on the unity between them. The unity is one flesh that we find in Genesis. Unity between the reflection of the unity of the head and the body and the unity of Christ and the church. One last piece I want to show us here. If you could take me to uh, Philippians, please. This is from one of my favorite sections of Scripture. If you want to understand my theology, in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, that is a major shaping piece of my understanding of God. He says, this is what Paul says, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God. He did not think his place as God was something he needed to cling to. Instead, he took everything that he had and he gave up his divine privilege on a cross. That's who Jesus is. And when this took place, this is what made God feel like he had the right to be exalted as king. This is what gave Christ headship, was his willingness to submit as a slave for us. Not because we deserved it, but because that's how you properly love. So, again, the marriage is a microcosm of the greater world. That's what it looks like in a first-century Greco-Roman context. The man in a patriarchal culture has a lot of opportunities the woman doesn't have. In their culture, a woman would submit to the man. And so Paul says, continue to submit to him, not because you have to, but because you want to out of love, because that's what your husband will need to be able to survive in this culture. And if you don't do that, you will undermine him and tear him down to everybody else. Husbands. So if that's what it looked like in the first century, what does it look like for us today? I was asking my wife, how do you feel about this being a, a patriarchal culture still? And, and we discussed it, and there are patriarchal elements to our culture still, though not anywhere close to the same as they were in the first century Greco-Roman context. What does it look for us today? In 2022, Boise, Idaho. I think the distinctness of life in Greco-Roman culture is very different. The, the truth of the matter is, um, in our household, if my wife was making more than me, I'm not bothered by that. It all goes to the same bank account. Um, so some of those things are a little bit different for me as I look at my household. But what it does mean is I need to look at what I have and what I can do to serve and build up my wife. Because building up my wife is also building up myself. We're one body, we're one team together, right? And because I love her, and therefore, as that verse from Galatians said, I am happy 
to be my wife's slave. I'm happy to serve my wife with all that I have, which shouldn't be below me because that's what Christ did for us. And I would propose that I know that my wife does the same for me, and that gives us a blessed, healthy marriage. But if this is a microcosm of the greater world, what does this look like in other relationships as well? How willing are we to yield to another in love? Think about what that could look like at your jobs, in your interpersonal relationships with other people. I was actually thinking of a situation. I was in a band years ago, around the time I met my wife, a long time ago. Um, and I loved being in that band. The band made great music. I was excited about it. And it came time to record our first CD. And I was so passionate about it that I was adamant about, this is what the song order needs to look like. This is what the art needs to look like. I'm so excited about it. This is what it needs to look like. And I was so caught up in my passion that I couldn't hear that the other three guys were saying a different direction. The truth of the matter is, none of these are life and death questions. But I was so passionate about it at that time that I, I couldn't see the beauty of what I had in front of me. The end result was they asked me to leave the band. And they deserved, I, it was right. And I've always regretted it, I've always looked back, I would go back and see them as they continued to play and was like, man, I wish I was up there. But I understand why I'm not. I was actually listening to uh, the CD we recorded. They never released it because somebody else came and so they re-recorded songs and moved on. And if I could have yielded and compromised, what beautiful things could have come from that? What are things in your life where you can yield and compromise? Obviously, we don't yield in our faith. We don't yield in our integrity. But what are things that you can yield in? Where are areas that you can submit to one another? Because that's actually the verse that starts this off. It's not about, wives, submit to your husbands. That was a very small piece in this, not even necessarily communicated in context, right? But it starts off with, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is what Christ does for the body, and that is what we as a body are supposed to do for each other. I thank you guys for letting me share this with you. And please, please, like I said, I've humbled myself to you. Let me know what pieces I might have missed or could have could have processed a little bit more clearly one another. But when we look to you, we see that this is what you did for us and we want to reflect you. Please help us to live out your spirit. Let your spirit flow through us as we yield to each other in love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.